Welcome to another episode of the Christian Combatters Podcast. I am your host and servant in Jesus Christ, Paladin Actual. Can't we all just get along? This is the question that keeps coming up. Why are we fighting? Why are us fellow theologians, different pastors and chaplains, even different denominations, why are we fighting? Why are we going on Facebook and arguing about whether girls should be acolytes or whether it's cross-dressing to put girls in albs? Why are we arguing about these things? Why can't we all just love Christ together and forget all of our differences? Well, my answer to that is because that's not biblical. In fact, the biblical approach is for there to be discussion and debate, for iron to sharpen iron, for us not only to disagree with one another and fight to, rem- to, to, to come to the truth for the sake of coming to the truth, but also to strengthen our own understanding and the understanding of others of what God teaches us. Acts chapter 15, this is the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15 talks about this a little bit. Uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 6 and eh, following. Um, This is the... They're meeting together to discuss the Judaizers. This was a movement that said it was necessary for the Gentiles to be circumcised and to follow the laws of Moses in order for them to become Christians. Acts chapter 15, verses 6 and following, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Verse 7, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up to them and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by the mouth, uh, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe and, and Peter goes on to explain this thing, uh, and then Paul and Barnabas talk about their experiences with the Gentiles, and and James basically said, this is my judgment, you know, you shouldn't shackle the Gentiles to these these laws that, you know, we weren't even able to follow ourselves, etc. The point here being that they didn't just, you know, agree. There wasn't some ex-cathedra statement of, of, we're not going to discuss this, we're not going to debate this, we're not going to talk about this, we're not going to talk about the merits behind these decisions, we're not going to talk about the theology, the scripture behind things, we're just going to go along and get along. We're either going to ignore our differences or we're going to have somebody top down just say, this is how it will be, ominous dominus, and it was so. That's not how the Christian church has ever functioned. And if you look throughout history, you've got these examples of these councils meeting. You've got these examples of these disputations and debates. Consider, for example, Martin Luther and his 95 theses. Do you know what theses are? Now, the 95 Theses in particular aren't necessarily Lutheran documents. If you read the 95 Theses, you're not going to look at them and say, hmm, this is what the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod should be believing. Rather, theses were topics of debate. Martin Luther was saying, hey, let's talk about these things. Aren't these some interesting things to talk about in a disputation? I mean, this was a university. This is exactly what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to present these issues and say, let's talk about, I don't know, global warming, or let's talk about war in the Middle East. Let's talk about the power and primacy of the Pope, all of these different things. So the history of the Christian church is and I would say specifically the history of Lutheranism is that there is discussion and there is debate. There is dissension. There is argument. Luther in particular, again, uh, church father, but not a prophet, infallible. Luther in particular regularly argued with people. And in some of these cases, he would come around to different decisions later on in his life. But his process of coming to the truth often often involved wrestling, wrestling with a text, wrestling with other theologians, wrestling with his conscience, wrestling with God. Now, you know, maybe a reference back to, uh, to Israel slash Jacob wrestling with God, but there's an idea in scripture, throughout scripture, that truth is achieved not by just 
I don't know, painting, sweeping things under the rug, sweeping disagreements under the rug, but by iron sharpening iron, by a, to use a debate term, a clash, a difference in opinion, and kind of wrestling to figure these things out. This is a good thing. And it isn't necessarily that these, these people disagreed with each other. So if Paul is disagreeing with Barnabas and saying, I don't want to take Mark with me, he's a wimp, and Barnabas is disagreeing with Paul, it isn't because Paul and Barnabas hated each other. Now, we've got this bizarre notion in our modern society that to disagree with a person, to argue with a person, and even to fight with a person means that you hate the person. It is not true. In fact, some of the most important decisions that you have to make should be a result of you fighting to find the truth with someone you love. You should be struggling if you believe something that you believe is true. If you hold something that you believe is true, you should be willing to stand up for that. You should be willing to say, look, this is important and I'm going to stand my ground on this and this is why I believe this thing that I believe. It is important and it is founded on something significant. Therefore, we should follow this practice. We should believe this thing. We should, you know, follow this action, right? And if somebody else believes something different, then they likewise should stand their ground and say, look, you may have your reasons for believing what you do. These are the reasons for believing what I do. And then at that point, you've both presented reasons. You both presented, hopefully, some sort of substance, some sort of, you know, foundation for your belief or your practice or your course of action. And then you can argue which is better. In the military, we do this all the time, particularly officers. It's, it's super obnoxious. Uh, the officers in the military, they don't just say, well, I'm, you know, I'm Colonel so-and-so. I'm going to decide that we do this thing. No. The way that you go, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm talking about this. There's something in the army that I've learned about since becoming an officer, and it, I, I hate it, but I understand its function. It is, it is a chore to go through, but it makes sense. It's called the military decision-making process, MDMP. And anybody in the army just roll their eyes and went, oh, MDMP, I hate that. We spend days and maybe even weeks going over courses of action. This is what the enemy has. This is what we have. This is our supply lines. This is what we'll need to do these things. Going over all these details, and then you come up with different possible solutions to the problem. You say, these are our problems. These are different solutions for the problem. And you have actually disagreement and argument of, we should do this course of action because this costs us less fuel. We should do this course of action because it's faster. We should do this course of action because it's safer, et cetera, et cetera. This idea of disagreeing to find a solution is actually productive. It isn't just that every time we disagree that all of a sudden it's fruitless and pointless. The reason why arguments are fruitless and pointless is if they become personal. If it's, okay, you disagree with me, I disagree with you, I hate you, you're dumb, you're wrong, you smell like nickels, right? <laughs> that gets nowhere. On the other hand, if you're saying, look, I say, look, let me, let me hear out your reasons for your plan, your reasons for your belief. I will give you my reasons for my belief, particularly if it's in a public setting where other people can sit back and, and, and judge and say, huh, that is compelling. He believes this thing because scripture leads to this conclusion. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, what does this other person believe and why does he believe it? When I'm talking with people about, about beliefs, when I'm disagreeing with somebody, that something that they present online, a lot of times I'll ask this question, well, these two questions, what do you believe and why do you believe it? Why do you believe it is often much more important than what you believe? Because if I can follow the steps that lead to your conclusion, I can come to the same conclusion if they're good steps. But if you can't explain why you believe something, it's very difficult to convince somebody else to come to that side. So when you're having an argument with somebody else online and you want an actual productive iron sharpening iron, Jerusalem Council theological disputation type argument, you need to be able to present 
why do I believe what I believe? Why is this the right practice? Why is this the right thing to believe, to do the right course of action, whatever it is, why? And in theory, you can follow the same steps and come to the same conclusion. So we need to, first of all, we need to get rid of this idea that fighting is negative, that disagreeing is negative, that having a disputation and an argument is negative. It doesn't have to be. If it's personal, sure. It's a waste of time if I tell you you smell like nickels. <laughs> and then, but it isn't a waste of time if one person is saying, look, we need to follow these Old Testament, you know, God, you know, God said that this is a covenant forever for his people. And the other person says, look, nobody's been able to follow this covenant, not even us that was given to, given to us. Why would we, why would we put this yoke on the Gentiles? And there's an argument based on scripture and then a conclusion is reached and we say, okay, okay, we're going to go along with this conclusion together. That is the appropriate outcome for an argument. So why am I bringing this up? Me, me, who is never contentious and never gets in any sort of fights, why am I bringing this up? Why is this coming up? Well, what I've found, and maybe I've told this story before, is in my seminary career, and even after my seminary career, what I've found is that I best understand, I want to say argument, but I best understand positions when they are presented in the form of an argument. When I get to say, here are the things I see wrong with that problem, and I get to attack and take apart and nitpick a theological position. Because then the person who holds a theological position can then present those pieces of information that I'm missing. Uh, the example that I use all the time is I was in seminary. Dr. Pless, bless his soul, he's still on this earth. Uh, he was teaching a class and he had, he had Barnabasian patience with me. And I was sitting in the class and he was taught, and everybody else in class had, had a good theological understanding except me. And I was sitting in the class pouting because Dr. Pless was talking about predestination. He was talking about double predestination. The Calvinists believe that you are either predestined, God chooses winners and losers, uh, and he picks them in advance. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that those who are in heaven are predestined to heaven. And that was the end of what Dr. Pless said. And I was mad because it didn't make sense to me. It was frustrating to me. This was something important. And I'm like, wait, Wait, if God picks winners, then by default, that means he picks losers. So how is that any different than this theological position of, of, of the Calvinists, of double predestination? I argued with him in class, and, he, and eventually we ran out of time in class. So then we had to have Gamukulka, and he was sitting down, and he was smoking a cigar, and he was having his uh, bourbon or whiskey or whatever it was that he was drinking. Uh, and, and I come out, and I see him at the table and say, you, I need to figure this out because this is bothering me. And I sat down with him for probably another couple of hours and we argued about this thing and he kept kind of explaining the situation from different angles until he had finally, I guess, either the Holy Spirit worked in my heart and, and turned my brain on or he had covered all of the angles of my concern and I eventually came to the conclusion that he had been presenting this entire time. And the conclusion was this, was that God does pick winner. God, God calls everybody to repentance. Uh, and those who are in heaven are the elect, but that doesn't necessarily mean that God elects people to damnation. And where the scripture is silent on this issue, it is not my position to fill in and to try to be more logical than the Bible and to fill in the gaps in God's logic. It is enough for us to say, look, this is a mystery. Let it stand as a mystery. This was a good thing. It was a humbling experience because, and this was part of training me to be a better Lutheran, is, is to be able to say, look, I don't have all the answers. This, is a, this may be a shock to some people, but I actually don't have all the answers. And there are times when I'll, when, when I'll put my foot down and I'll say, no, this is absolutely the truth. And there are times when I'll say, you know what? I don't know. And the more I see other competent theologians be able to present that, that limitation of, you know, the Bible doesn't actually specifically tell us the details about the Nephilim 
right? The Bible doesn't specifically tell us the details about continent shift or how the water went away after the flood. The Bible says these things and the, and the Bible leaves other things a mystery. And it is okay for us to say, I don't know how this happened because the Bible doesn't tell me. And because it's a miracle, I can't expect science to tell me. And this, there was no other recorded history that we can trust at that time. So I have no way of knowing the answer to this information. It's a mystery, as the Orthodox would say. It's a mystery. It's one of God's mysterion. It's one of God's mysteries. Okay, some of the Bible is, is mysterious. So it was a humbling experience to come to this conclusion. But my point in this, in this stupid story that I told about my life, my point in this story is that the way that I got to this conclusion was arguing about this thing. This is why I'm picking fights with people online, not, not people who I think are, well, let me put it this way. The people in particular that I'm specifically engaging in a verbal tit-a-tat are people whose opinions I respect, are people who do a lot of research, who know information that I don't know, and I am going to wring the juice out of that orange, out of that lemon, as best as I can, because I want to get every drop of knowledge that they've got. What they got, I want in terms of knowledge. So, for example, if I'm picking on Dr. Gavin Ortland of the Truth Unites channel, it's because he does a lot of research. Dude's a smart dude, got a lot of information that I don't have. So when he presents an idea about the age of the earth, about the the concept of creation, about uh, Noah's flood, about stuff like this. And I'm like, I see holes in what you're presenting. I want to know what your solutions are to these questions. The reason I pick a fight and make four hours of video in response to his, to his 45 minutes of presentation are not because I'm like, oh, this guy's an idiot, ignore everything he says, but it's about, okay, you seem to have some information that I don't have. Let's get at that. And if what you're presenting has some holes, let's deal with that. And if there's a mystery, let's call it a mystery. And if there's information that one of us doesn't have, let's hope that the other person then receives that information. And as a result, iron sharpens iron, gaps are filled in, or we accept that gaps cannot be filled in and mysteries are mysteries and everybody is better as a result. Another example was... Uh, these past, I don't remember, a week or two ago, uh, I was at a chaplain conference. And, and every once in a while we go to these chaplain conferences and everybody wears Hawaiian shirts. It's a good time. Um, and I'm engaging with um, jo Dr. John Bombaro and Dr. Larry Bean. Uh, and I, you know, I, as a confession, I read a lot of the Goddess Things crowd stuff. There's a lot of very, I would say a lot of spicy hot takes there. Not necessarily wrong. Not always, you know, not infallible. But they'll talk about issues, and they'll talk about issues that either aren't talked about, uh, I would say, frequently enough, or talk about them in a way that is more engaging, is more fiery, is more passionate than we would normally see. Uh, so because of that, I'm a, I'm a big fan of a lot of the stuff that he writes and a lot of stuff that he puts out. Um, so I wanted to engage with him about this question that I've been, that I've been working on. I put out a video of a little while ago, uh, and I'll tell you why I did that in a second. I put out a video about this, about whether girls can be acolytes, whether girls can be acolytes, because we don't have an LCMS handbook for acolytes. We've got one for altar guilt. We don't have one for acolytes, and I don't see why we don't. I assume that there's some smart people out there who have this information who can distill this into a handbook. And boy, would that be wonderful and helpful to have some official guidance as, as, you know, as a denomination, as a synod, to say, look, this is what we believe, confess, and teach about, about acolytes and crucifers and lucifers and torchbearers and, 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 and lectionary bearers and altar boys and all these other things, these uh, minor orders, somebody might call them. We don't have any official LCMS teaching on that. And it's not good enough to say, look, here are these minor orders that existed back in, uh, in the church in, I don't know, 700 AD or, or, or 1100 AD or whatever, because there's a lot of practices that are ancient that we reject as Lutherans. So it isn't enough just to say it's old, therefore it's good. 
What is our guidance as Lutherans? What are we confessing about acolytes, for example? Do, when we say somebody's an acolyte, do we literally just mean they're a person who lights candles and that's it? Do we mean, as maybe the Roman Catholics used to mean, or maybe the older church used to mean, that this was a step of minor orders, a step towards the priesthood, then an acolyte would eventually become a, a subdeacon, then a deacon, then, then, then a pastor, then a you know, bishop, whatever, whatever. And it was this, this progression towards the priesthood. Is that what we mean? Because if so, we need to be consistent and on the same page about that. If, as the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, we are talking about acolytes, we need to have a consistent definition. Are we talking about people who light the candles, or are we talking about people who are, uh, who are assistants to the pastor in a minor order? Is an acolyte the person who sits in the pew after they light the candles, or are they the person that sits next to the pastor and the deacon and the elder or whatever behind the altar while, you know, while the hymns are being sung or whatever, and has a role more akin to a direct assistant of the pastor? Because I don't think it's consistent. It, at one church, we'll say, well, that's an acolyte. Well, what do they do? They light the candles. Well, what else do they do? Well, that's it. They light the candles. In another church, you go to and say, what is that? That's an acolyte. Well, what do they do? Well, they follow the pastor. They're next to the pastor during the consecration. They sit next to the pastor. Uh, you know, they, they wear an alb. They're, they're, they're akin to a vicar. They're akin to a deacon. They're somebody who is, is part of the minor orders. It's not consistent. There is no consistent teaching in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod of what is an acolyte. Why not? Let's figure something out. Let's find some common ground because those two things are not the same. One, they light candles. Okay, cool. Why wouldn't it be, why, why couldn't girls light candles, right? The other one, they're basically like a, a, like a mini vicar or a subdeacon or whatever. Okay, that makes sense why only boys should do this because it's an extension of the pastoral office. But we don't have common ground here. We don't have a common teaching here. What can we rely on and say, look, this is what we believe, teach, and confess as Lutherans. So this is my frustration here. And right now, as far as I know, I'm, I'm open to correction. And in this matter, I'm desperately seeking knowledge because it's my job as a pastor to teach what an acolyte is. What do we mean when we call somebody an acolyte? What are the requirements of an acolyte? How should they behave? How should they dress? Who can be an acolyte? All these questions are great, but I need answers to them. So how do I find the answers to them? Well, one, I could look on Wikipedia, right? I could look on, I could look on, you know, I could look at the Book of Concord. I, I Frankly, I looked in there and I couldn't find anything in minor orders and stuff about acolytes. I couldn't. I looked in the Bible. What is there in the Bible that talks about acolytes and minor orders? Now, somebody somebody online pointed out, you know, traditionally in, in um, I don't know, Jewish temples or, or synagogues, Jewish synagogues or something like that, the, girl, the women would light the candles or something. I mean, there's all these traditions and stuff like that. And which traditions are we holding on to? Are we saying, look, these Jewish traditions, we're holding on to these, therefore the women are the only ones who should light the candles? I talked about an example of a, a pastor I know who says, in the Bible, the only example we have of somebody bearing the light of the world is Mary. Therefore, all acolytes, all torchbearers should be women. Well, that's an interesting take. Um, but it is connected to scripture, what, what are we saying? What are we confessing as Lutherans? Where, where in our confessions is there a teaching about acolytes, about the minor orders? If it's not in our confessions, if it's not in scripture, where is it? Is it just an ancient document? Is it, is it the Didache? Now, I confess, I haven't read the Didache in full, so maybe there is something in the Didache about, about this. Are we following the Didache? Whatever, whatever document, whatever, um, whatever source of doctrine that we're following to define minor orders, to define acolytes and stuff like that, are we picking and choosing what we're, what we're taking from this document? Or are we following it as a whole? Like we're saying like, look, here's, I'm going to make something up. 
St. Augustine, uh, he wrote this document about minor, the Benedictine, whatever. Augustine wrote this, this document about the minor orders. And he says the, all these things about what they should wear, how they should behave, how they should be trained, what the requirements are, yada, yada. Okay. Okay, are we taking the whole document and saying, look, we are following this whole thing because it's an ancient church teaching? Or are we picking and choosing? Are we cherry picking and saying, look, I like this thing about the acolytes, but the rest of this document is non-authoritative. It has no authority whatsoever. It does not direct what we, what we confess, what we teach, and what we practice. Where's the consistency? This, this is why I'm picking a fight here. One, obviously, I want to learn right? I want to learn why these people believe what they believe. I want to learn what possible options there are to believe. But I also think it would be wonderful, and this is not my position necessarily to do this, but I'll be, it would be wonderful for us to spark enough of an argument, enough of a conversation about a topic like this, that we have a conclusion that we all settle on. One third, I want to say tertiary benefit of, of this argument in particular is it's uncovering some other things that I think are interesting that need to be dealt with that I think are more black and white than this issue of, uh, of acolytes. Now, again, the issue of acolytes may be black and white, and I just haven't received enough information and enough understanding to come to the correct conclusion on that. I'm willing to, to say I have some learning to do, and, and I'm not comfortable yet to say I am confident on my position on acolytes. I am, I'm not a blank slate, but... I would love some more instruction to come to the correct conclusion on this. And I've received some resources from some people and I'm going to be reading through them and I haven't come to a conclusion yet and there's more things to read and more things to study. So I'm not going to say anything definitive yet, but this is wonderful. I'm learning more things about this. But there are, there are other issues that kind, of, that kind of came up as a result of this conversation that I would say are more black and white. So I'm talking, I pick a fight on Facebook, right? I I, I don't want to say I know what was going to happen, but I was hoping what would ha what happened would happen. So this is the timeline of events. I I, I make a video about um, uh, can girls be acolytes, and I record this in advance, and I send it to release a couple weeks afterwards. I actually delayed it; it was going to release earlier than that, but I was responding to Dr. Orland. I was picking a fight with him about the flood or something like that. So that video released first. Uh, the acolyte video released later on, and this video released. I believe the week that I was at the, the convention with, or the conference with other chaplains. Now, uh, inevitably at, at these chaplains conventions, I run in, into Dr. Dr. Bean and uh, he's one of the few people I recognize. God bless you all, but I don't recognize you all at the convention. Um, but he's one of the people that I recognize and, and it's always a fascinating conversation to talk with. Both him and his wife are both really insightful, very interesting, um, uh, very educated, uh, very articulate people to talk to. Very passionate as well. One of the things that is difficult is when you talk with somebody and they, they don't seem to care about what they're talking about and what they're teaching. This isn't the problem with, with, with Dr. Bean. With Dr. Bean, I'll come up to him and I'll say, what do you think on this issue? And he will give me the 100% straight on fire answer for what he thinks on that issue. Uh, and he's open to arguing about that because he believes that he's right. He's confident enough to stand his ground on the issue rather than saying, well, let's just agree to disagree. He's like, no, I will fight you on this issue. So I had a wonderful argument with him, um, with him and Dr. Bambaro at a table. We were talking about this and I only had a little bit of time. Unfortunately, I had to, I had to get going, but I only had a little bit of time to broach this subject. Enough time uh, that I was actually offered some, some free resources by Dr. Bambaro that he sent me that are excellent that I'm going through right now, but enough time to spark the conversation about this. And I mentioned, I happened to mention uh, that my stupid little YouTube channel happens to be dropping a video this week about can girls be acolytes. Okay, well, 
that happened. The video dropped after the convention. I went and I shared the video online on, on the various Facebook groups and you have the, the regular responses of, of people who respond to the video but haven't actually watched the video. It's usually like 90% of the responses. But there are a couple of responses of people who are like, okay, interesting. This is what I think of the video having watched it. These are my responses. And thanks be to God, Dr. Larry Bean was on Facebook one of these days when he saw this video. And not only did he respond to the video with a substantive answer, but he went and he wrote um, a blog post on the goddess scenes. Uh, guys and things. Well, this is fantastic. Now, not only do I have an acolyte manual that I never had before, not only do I have a conversation, an ongoing engagement where I'm where I'm arguing and discussing with some people about this content, but also he's 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 collecting and presenting information that he knows and is passionate about in a format that I can read and learn a, a lot more. I just got a bunch of free education and all I had to do was pick a fight with somebody who cares about an issue. Wasn't that wonderful? So going forward, this is, this is exciting for me because I get to read these resources and hopefully this isn't the end of the conversation because hopefully this, this develops into something more, um, more organized. I would love for example, for CPH, and I'm not offering to do it because I'm not an expert on this subject, but I would love for CPH to be able to print out, because it's, an, it's the official publishing house of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, for them to print out official guidelines, definitions, history of, things like that, of acolytes, of minor orders. Wouldn't that be wonderful if as a result of this engagement and this argument and all this information being put, put out there, somebody says, hey, this is something that people are passionate about. This is something that people want information of. Let me put together something and present something um, in, in, in a book format, in a handbook format that, that, that people can purchase and that we can all be on the same page together, that we can start to have a, a standardized practice of, of the minor orders. Because we already have this, like I said before, we already have this for, for the, the sacristans, the, what I have, the altar guild. We have an altar guild handbook. The CPH put it out. It is fantastic, God tons of information in it. There's actually multiple versions of it that have different amounts of information in it. Wouldn't it be great if we had something like that for the minor orders? If, we, if we're saying, okay, your church doesn't have to have an acolyte, literally the pastor can light the candles, but if your church wants to do these additional things, here's how to do this in a way that is orderly and that is uh, coherent with the, the other Lutheran churches. If you want to have a crucifer, Here's how to do it. If you want to light the candles, here's a good order to do it. And this is why we do it in this order. This is where this tradition came from. This is, how, you know, things that you can teach your congregation that this is an ancient and important and ordered structured thing. This is a wonderful thing. Wouldn't that be wonderful if somebody at CPH, wink, wink, nod, nod, if somebody at CPH would put something together like that? I would not only buy one copy, I would buy a copy for every single acolyte in training, every single uh, uh, elder, and anybody who might be interested, you know, confirmants who might be interested in acolytes. That would be fantastic. And you know what? It would be useful enough to sell multiple copies of it. Wink, wink, nod, nod. <laughs> this would be great if this happened. So the third thing, the third thing that, that resulted from picking this fight is this uncovered other issues that need to be dealt with. So, all right acolytes, girls in, in albs, all that stuff aside. As a result of this conversation, this was something interesting that I saw appear on multiple Facebook posts where people who were talking about um, women serving as elders in the congregation. One woman in particular, she said, um, there weren't enough men in the congregation, so a husband and wife duo had to step up to serve as elders. Another one said, well, in my congregation, women serve as elders, but they're not allowed to serve as the head elder. And this opens up 
another can of worms that, again, iron sharpening iron, arguing for a purpose, not just, you know, calling people uh, saying that you smell like nickels, but, um, but, but actually discussing the issue and the theology and the Bible and, and, and the confessions and, and the history behind this stuff. This opens up another wonderful thing that we need to talk about. If there are female elders in Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, is that okay? Is it not okay? Why? What, what, what reason would we have? What scriptures would we quote? What uh, official LCMS documents should we adhere to? What confessional statements should we, should we pay attention to? This is an excellent way. We, un, we just, I mean, again, talking about girl acolytes in albs led to talking about female elders, which I think is actually a different topic, but also something that should be discussed. So I'm excited to see, like, what will this conversation turn into? What other resources will come out of this conversation? What other topics will come out that say, oh, 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 we need to talk about that as well. Because already I'm thinking, okay, this is the start of, oh, we were talking about acolytes and stuff. Now we're talking about female elders. What about female communion assistants? What about female lectors? What about females on the church council as voting council members? What about female council members like president and vice president? And from what I understand, a lot of congregations are not aware of any specific teachings on these matters. And I know that there are specific LCMS documents that say, do this and don't do this. But a lot of people are not aware of these teachings, of these, of these standardized teachings. And I think this is an excellent way to bring it to the forefront. Because if everybody on Facebook is like, when well, you log into Facebook, your grandma Schmeckenpepper, and you've been going to, you know, St. Paul, Minnesota, or what is St. Paul? Well, St. Paul anywhere, church, Lutheran church, because uh, there's always a St. Paul in every town. Um, and you've been going to St. Paul for 50 years, and all of a sudden you log on to Facebook, and, and people are fighting about female lecterns. What's a lectern? And, and why does it make a difference if it's a boy or a girl or a man or a Oh, that's why they're arguing about it. Oh, there are things in scripture. Oh, there is official LCMS doctrine. And all of a sudden, people who would otherwise not engage in these issues are engaging in these issues, and they're thinking, oh, wow. There's some standardized practice in the Lutheran church and there's reason behind it. Interesting. I wonder what else I might not know. So it's good to bring these things to the forefront. Yeah, you could just say, well, let's not argue. No, let's argue. Let's argue and let's argue publicly. Let's argue, I wouldn't say professionally, but I would say let's argue substantively. Uh, and it's okay to have a little bit of fun and argument, um, but it should be it should be leading to something. It shouldn't just be name calling. You could throw a little name calling in there, uh, but it shouldn't just be name calling. It should be well. Let's look at what the Bible says. Let's look at what the church has done throughout history. Let's look at what the confessions teach. Let's look at what you know these theologians have taught. These sorts of things. Uh, I, I think that this is a benefit. So I want to encourage. I want to encourage Christians and theologians to to actually be passionate. Be passionate about things to the point where you're willing to argue about them online. It's actually okay to argue. It's actually okay to fight about these things. And this is actually something that can lead to some pretty significant benefits. I've listed a few of them already. I'm sure you can come up with a few more. And really, going along to get along is nice, I guess, but it doesn't, nothing grows. Nobody is taught. Nobody learns anything. Nothing is questioned. I'm not talking about deconstructionism, but I'm talking about you should be able to answer. And this is something that I encourage pastors. I mean, me as a young pastor, I encourage other pastors to say, look, take some time, you know, before every sermon, or not before every sermon, but before every service and take two minutes and teach about something. Teach about why do we have the chasuble? What does chasuble mean? Hint, the word means little house. Why do we wear it? Why do we wear the alb? Why do we wear the stole? Why are there candles? Why do we have hymns? Why do we have this? Why do we have a crucifix? Why do we use wine? Why do we have gold and silver? You know, all these questions, 
take an opportunity to, to teach your people because guess what? People who come to church love learning stuff. People in congregations, uh, it's one thing to go to church and to say, okay, I checked that off my box. I did the thing on Sunday. I showed up. I had the little wine and the cracker, whatever, and then I go home. It's another thing for them to show up and say, oh, cool, I learned something today. The pastor taught me something today. Or another member of the congregation, or an elder taught me something today. Or my, my confirmants who are going through acolyte training, they taught me about why do we have a crucifix? They taught me the word crucifer. You know, I learned the word sacristan. Isn't that a cool word? You know, it's cool to, to show up to church and to walk away and say, hey, I have some quantifiable knowledge that was added that, it was, that, I, that I learned today. People like that. I mean, the whole, <laughs> if you've ever had a Snapple in your life and you pop off the cap of a Snapple and you've got the Snapple facts, those are fun. It's cool. I mean, it's cool to learn trivia, but it's even cool to learn like details of things that matter. Like, oh, oh, that's why we have a crucifix behind the altar. Oh, that's interesting. Not only is it fascinating, not only is it something that they can talk about with other people later, but it's actually useful as well. It teaches people. Uh, everything in your church should teach should teach something, you know, baptismal font. Why does it have eight sides? Hmm. I wonder if there's a reason that there are eight sides on your baptismal font. Ask your pastor. He might have an interesting answer for you. Better yet, your pastor can just teach about that sort of thing. So anyways, I guess in all of this, my, my push is, is to be passionate, to, to, to share information, to request information, and sometimes to fight about doctrine because Throughout Christian history, this is how we come to the same, to be on the same page about things. This is how we come to learn about things. And this is how we come to learn about additional issues that we maybe didn't even consider were going on. With all of this, God bless you all and take care.